Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 33. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself his Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Pray with me. Father, would you now by your word do that work in us as we've heard your word spoken to us. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand that we might not refuse your calling or ignore your voice. May we all be taught by you through your powerful word. Bring our every thought captive to obeying Christ to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Well, we're back in this text for a reason, and one is that there's much in this text. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones found 11 sermons uh, in this text. You get two. Last week and this one. Uh, But we will still simply be touching on some of what's there, but hopefully touching on uh, what might what amounts to the heart of this passage in two different ways that I hope to show you. Nate uh, set the table for this text last week, and I want to simply repeat some of the things that he said at the beginning, because some of you weren't here last week, and for some of you, a week ago was a long time. (laughs) So consider this, as we come to this text today, Paul is writing to a church, and he's writing to a church that is not exclusively husbands and wives. He's writing to a congregation. He's writing, it's a secular, circular letter, sorry, a circular letter intended to make its way to other churches as well, addressing everyone who makes up the body of Christ. So married or not, this is for you. Single or divorced or widowed, 
this is for you in some practical ways. Because what you're going to see, I trust, as we go through this together, is all of us will see the kind of character impact, the impact of the gospel, whether you're married or not, the kind of character impact that we were made for and long for and were called to. So find yourself in this story. If you're divorced, there's no shame. If you're single, you're not incomplete. If you're widowed, the ache that you feel is an ache that the gospel knows. We're all married in one sense or another. And this text shows us. We heard specifically last week that marriage is about God. Do you remember this? It's a reflection of God Himself where you have God the Father and God the Son who were one substance but not identical. One substance. There was an equality but not identity, not identical nature. The marriage is about the gospel that it brings uh, together Christ and the church. The, The story begins with a marriage and it ends with a marriage. And in between we learn that Christ in love left His family for you and pursued you as His bride. And we're going to see that in in bold strokes today. Marriage is about God. It's about the gospel. And what we find here is a picture given to us that's intended to shape our lives. You know, in, our, in the culture in which we live, we, we walk into this passage with all kinds of issues and preconceived ideas or experiences. In fact, if we come from the culture into this passage, we keep right on walking because we find things here that are challenging, that are difficult, that are puzzling. And we find things, we find principles that have been misunderstood and misapplied by the church for generations. And so we're coming not with a new understanding of what these these roles are for husband and wife, but a biblical understanding, I trust, as we go through this. What does it look like? What is it intended to be? And how do we navigate that? You know, you go to a wedding these days in the world, and if there are, if there are vows, they don't refer to roles. And marriage itself is even optional in the culture in which we live. But we come into this because we have a framework for understanding a framework that the world does not have. So there's no surprise that the world pushes back. But there's also another element at work if we look very carefully, and that is even within the church, we at times try to get out from under the weight of the words and the direction that this passage takes us. When you read through the, the, the heart of this passage that we're going to look at, 22 to 33, there are two big themes. There's the relationship between Christ and the church. You heard that. There's also the relationship between a husband and a wife. And you can only understand the latter if you understand the former. You can only understand what the Bible says about the relationship between a husband and a wife if you first, if, unless you first understand the relationship between Christ and the church. So that's where we will start. Paul goes back and forth. But we're going to start with the key piece that's critical to understand for you to be able to get a handle on 
what these roles might look like in a healthy marriage, Christ-centered. Three parts to our sermon. The story that forms our lives. The drama that tells the story. And the change the gospel makes. First, the story that forms our lives. There's a, a YouTube channel entitled Stories That Shape Us. It's about the power of storytelling. We love a good story. Before I knew who Harry Potter was, I watched a woman, a mother, with her, with her feet dangling in a swimming pool, reading Harry Potter to her son that was hanging on every word instead of swimming. There's power in a story. There's power in the stories that we hear. There's a national storytelling festival in Jonesboro uh, every October, Jonesboro, Tennessee, which is on my to-do list. There's something about a powerful story that has impact and shapes us. But like the newspaper writer whose job is on the line, we are in search of a story. We're in search of a story that, that... that lands in our lives, that that shapes our lives, that gives us meaning and joy and purpose and love. And we will search for that story. You may be searching for that story today and not calling it that, but you are searching for a love that loves you. You're, You're searching for a story that is endless and particular. And that's what we find in this story. The story that forms our lives is the story of Christ in the church. Paul uses those words, he jumbles those words together four times in these verses. Christ in the church, Christ church, church in Christ. This mystery is profound, verse 32, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What Paul has in front of him as he sits down to, to write and to instruct about life gospel-formed life in the family, marriage in particular, he has in mind the story of Christ and the church. Arguably, without making any argument at all, it's, it's, when you read the story as it comes to us, marriage exists for a particular purpose, and it's not your pleasure. It's to tell a story is to tell the story of God's pursuit of you and His work to form a people and to marry them to Himself. That's the story. That's the story that you've been in search for that's right in front of us that Paul wants to plant in front of us here. He gives, when he talks about Christ, he gives us two pictures. The first one is Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its Savior. Christ is the head. Uh, he, says it, he said it earlier in, in Ephesians chapter 1, but that was months ago. Here's what you heard then. The Father of glory put all things in subjection under his, Christ's feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church. Christ is the head of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ is the head. There's no group of people that are the head of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. There's no person anywhere that's the head of the church in Franklin. There's one church in Franklin. There's one church in Nashville. It's one church. There's one church, and there's one head, and it's Jesus Christ. 
When asked to explain what that really means, John Calvin reflected on it and said, as head of the church, Jesus is, quote, the root from which all vital energy is diffused through all the members. So the life of the church flows out from Christ. There's a lot of things that go with the word head. Authority is certainly one of them. I'll get to that in a second. But what, what you heard there was to understand Christ as head is to see Him as the root out of which your life grows. He is the head in that sense, that everything comes from Him. The life that you have, the joy that you have on occasion comes from His life bearing fruit in you. He is the root and the source of your life, united to Him by faith. He is your head. He is your source. He's also an authority. We'll get to that in a second. But, but He is husband. That's the other word picture that we find in this passage. That Christ is head, but He's also husband. And this is how Hosea put it when he's describing, he's recording words where God the Father intends to bring you to himself, and he says, thinking of his son who would come and reign and rule and come to you and to us, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love. That's that covenant love and in mercy. You have a head, church. We have a head who is our husband who has betrothed us to himself forever. Forever. (laughs) In steadfast love. Love that does not end, that does not bend, that does not wane, it does not fade. It's steadfast. And And it's marked by mercy. That's the story you were made for. That's the story your heart longs for. That's the story that is being told when we read Ephesians from beginning to end. Christ, two pictures, head and husband. Church, two pictures, mirroring those two. The head has a body. The church is the body. The the church that is His, that expresses who He is. That's the church. That's who we are assembled. We are His body. He is the head. We are His hands and feet and arms and legs. We are the expressions of His life. We are His body. We're also His bride. Another image And I said this story began with a marriage in Genesis and it ends in Revelation that we mentioned again last week. Here's how it's described in Revelation 19 and 21. The marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It's the marriage, that eternal, I've betrothed you to me forever. It's the marriage of the church to Jesus Christ. And I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb, Revelation 21. That's how this story ends. That's the grand finale. That's the crescendo. That's when the symbols clash. The marriage of the Lamb to the church. That's your life. That's your 
That's your story. That's your joy. And it's out in front of you, but it's not all future. It is now. There is a joy that marks your life today when you hear that story and step into it. That's the story that shapes our lives. Well, there's also a drama that tells the story. What do the films The Pursuit of Happiness, Argo, Rain Man, and Raging Bull have in common? They're all true stories. They're all based on a true story. We hear it all the time, a film based on a true story. And I want to suggest to you that when we take, when we begin to wade into this messy, controversial, debatable discussion about roles in marriage, we're talking about a drama that tells the story. It tells the story, not of marriage here, but of that ultimate marriage. A drama that tells the story. I entitled the sermon, The Living Drama of Marriage, and a few people chuckled at that because they said, well, I, yeah, my, my marriage is filled with drama. <laughs> your marriage might be marked by drama on occasion, but your, but your marriage, for those of you who are married, your marriage is to be a drama. Not dramatic. Not hysteric. It's to be a demonstration to display to the world and to one another this truest of all stories. The marriage of the Lamb to His bride, the church. That's how we begin to wade into this. That's why you cannot understand headship and submission until you understand the relationship of Christ in the church. There's a couple of different views the way even within the church that, um, that this is approached. You may have heard the term or lived it out or embrace it yourself. That is an egalitarian way of thinking about marriage, meaning equality across the board without distinctions. We're in this together 50-50 or 100-100, you know, but we're in this together, two individuals. What, what begins to undermine that approach is to understand what was mentioned last week, and that is in marriage you become one flesh, not two fleshes. It's not two fleshes. It's not two roommates. It's something new. You've heard the husband jokingly say, well, you just met my better half. Let me introduce you to my better half. Well, he's on the right track to say that because half is the way to think about it. Two people coming together to make something new, a new person. It's not a new roommate. It's not a new business partner, which is frankly, what a lot of marriages can devolve into, a business arrangement where we learn he does this, she does that, there are things we don't talk about, here are the things we do agree on, and we have a business relationship. Sadly, that's, that is descriptive of many marriages, even within the church. But what Paul is calling us to is to tell a story. To tell the story of Christ and the church 
And that means recognizing that there are differences and distinctives that we can embrace in love. And to do so is to tell that story. Uh, The first mention of gender in the Bible is Genesis. Male and female, he created them. And then God created a helper for Adam. But a better translation is not suitable for him. It is like opposite him. Like opposite. He created Adam, then he created Eve like opposite him. Different. And not just anatomically. And if you've been around the other gender, you will know there are differences. Some very obvious and some quite subtle, but they are real differences. And what we do here is not a blending of the differences, but a celebration of the differences. And seeing those things come together, not in an egalitarian way where there are no distinctions, but in a complementary way, which means equality with distinctions. The genders are not interchangeable. They are equal, but they have distinctions. And it's in the very differences that union is formed. And it's through those very differences that the drama is displayed. First, we'll look at the husbands. And I'm going to call it the husband's gracious headship. Verse 23. Uh, In a In a book on marriage written by husband and wife, Tim and Kathy Keller, Kathy wrote the chapter on roles and wrote this. Every human culture has found a way to interpret male headship in a way that has marginalized and oppressed women. And it's usually the women who notice and object to this treatment first. (laughs) Every human culture has found a way to mess this up. And it's usually the women that notice first. Not always. There's lots of ways to misunderstand and misapply headship and submission. And she's helping us think about her response to her role right there. And I'll get to that in a second. You know, when we come to headship in the scriptures here for husbands, there are almost no details about how it's to be expressed in concrete behavior. I'm going to suggest a few here in a minute. But there's a general principle. And the general principle begins with Jesus' words to his disciples and to us when he says, Jesus says that authority is to be exercised sacrificially for the benefit of others. That's what authority is. It's to be exercised for the benefit of others. Any authority, God-given authority in this world, Government, family, wherever the, whatever the arena, the, the authority that's been placed in society and in marriages is for the good of others, not for personal satisfaction and glory. Headship, you see, doesn't mean doing what I say, getting my way, and doing it now. That's not what headship is. Headship is sacrificial love to benefit the other. Love and sacrifice are two words that that hover over this notion of headship. Love and sacrifice. It's as Christ loved the church. Husbands, love your wives. 
lead your wives, head your family as Christ loved the church. That word is agape. That is a, that is a giving word, not a owning word or having. It's not about having something. It's about giving. The bar is set pretty high, guys. We are to sacrificially love the way Christ loved. How do we know Christ loved the church? And it is past tense here. We know that Christ loves us today. He loves the church, but He loved us. How do we know that Christ loved us? Well, Paul answers that question in verse 25. He gave Himself up for her. He laid down His life. He died. He died out of love for you. And that's the picture, <laughs> husbands. To love your wife as Christ loved the church. To nourish and cherish as Christ does the church. Verse 29. Let me try to be practical for just a moment. You were hoping I would. Husbands, to love and to serve as the head of your family, that means that you set the course. That you pay attention. That you do assessment. That your eyes are open. And you're involved. And you're engaged. And you're curious. And you're full of love. And you ask good questions. It means setting the course, and what I mean by that is through dialogue with your wife, learning from her, her joys, her fears, her hopes, her plans, <laughs> learning together, and then ass assembling those together into your together, your plural plan and direction. But husband, eyes wide open, attending, not passive but involved, setting the course, influencing that movement. What does our family need to be moving in that direction? How are we doing? Is to pay attention and to influence that movement with prayer and with your initiative. Is to monitor the health. Is to anticipate your wife's needs and desires. Is to be an expert on your wife. That's a husband who leads and serves sacrificially with nourishing and cherishing, not owning, not directing, listening. That's the husband's gracious headship. The Bible is clear, men and women, husbands and wives, <clears throat> that our roles don't fall outside the responsibilities to love. In fact, they are particularized forms of love. Headship and submission is a particularized form of love, understanding that both roles are carried out with a greater responsibility to love. So the, that's the husband's gracious headship. What about the wife's gracious submission? Verses 22 and 24, we read, wives, submit to your husbands. Well, now why would that be? I mean, why does the husband get the lead and the wife have to follow? 
That's a wrong way to frame the question, for one. But when the Bible approaches that question, and it's a legitimate question, an important one, how do we understand the the assignments, so to speak? The Scripture always points in two directions. It points to creation. It was from Adam that Eve was formed. It wasn't from another clump of dirt. But there's a union there, there's a, there's a source there, there's a belonging there, there's a side-by-sideness there. But it was from Adam. It points to creation, but it also points to redemption. And that is the story that we've been talking about. That Christ is the picture of the husband's role. The church mirrors the devotion of the church to Christ as she respects and mirrors a devotion to her husband, as wrong as he might be from time to time. The word submit means to arrange under. And to arrange myself under, to put myself under anything or anyone, requires me, as Paul writes in Philippians, to in humility count others in that moment, more significant than myself. To arrange myself under is to, is to pay heed to someone else and to bend, to bend my will. It's a supernatural ability. We'll come back to that too. But in humility, we're to count others more significant from ourselves. And we're to consider that Christ, though He was in the form of God, Philippians 2, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. It was that passage that Kathy Keller was reflecting on when she thought about her role in her marriage. This is what she wrote. Jesus shed His divine privileges without becoming any less divine. And he took on the most submissive role, that of servant who dies in his master's service. In this passage, we see taught both the essential quality of the first and second persons of the Godhead, and yet voluntarily the voluntary submission of the Son to the Father to secure our salvation. Let me emphasize, she writes, that Jesus' willing acceptance of this role was wholly voluntary, a gift to his Father. I discovered there that my submission in marriage was a gift I offered, not a duty coerced from me. With Jesus in view, Jesus and the church, the story of stories, Kathy found her role and writes, it was not an essential salt on the dignity and divinity, but rather led to the greater glory of the second person of the Godhead to submit himself and assume the role of a servant. Then how could it possibly injure me to be asked to play out the Jesus role in my marriage? Where does it end? The second person of the Godhead with glory. Christ reigning and ruling from on high. Where does, that, where does this story end? She's asked to live out her role as a husband is asked to live out his. A pastor in Scotland got real specific, and I'm just going to borrow his 
questions for just a moment to get practical once again. Wives, do you submit to your husband's God-appointed leadership? Do you submit gladly out of love? Do you help him live up to his calling? Do you pray for your husband to have courage, grace, wisdom, humility to be your head? Husbands, do you make it as easy as possible for your wife to follow your leadership? Do you treat your wife as your spiritual equal? Do you tell her as the Lord often tells His bride that you love her and cherish her? Do you treat her with gentleness and thoughtfulness? Do you listen to her and have the humility to lead her when necessary by following her? Because she's right a lot of the time. That's the gracious role of the husband, the gracious role of the wife. What about the change that's required? Whether your husband or wife, single, divorced, widowed, if you're here listening today, what kind of change does the gospel make in you that produces the kind of humility and sacrificial love that is to mark all of our lives? Not just in marriage. Humility and self-sacrifice. How do you get yourself out of the middle in order for someone else to be honored and loved and served? Well, we have an indwelling spirit. Verse 18, way back above our text today. Remember that? We were reading it all for a reason. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't get drunk with wine. Be filled. Don't be influenced by alcohol. Be influenced by the Spirit. It's the Spirit's influence in you that moves you in this direction. Self and selfishness are the disrupting forces and the primary reasons that we have conflict, that we have turmoil, and we have unhealthy marriages. Or unhealthy churches. Not this one, but would that be the case? It's because we can't get self out of the middle. Um, a friend of mine referred to marriage as the graduate school of discipleship. Because that's where you see things that you need to see that come out in your corporate life together. You don't see those things when you live alone. But all it takes is a roommate, much less a spouse, to help you see things on a daily basis that need to be dealt with. The Graduate School of Discipleship. How do we get ourselves out of the middle of everything? Kevin DeYoung, writing in a different context, says something I think is very helpful here. You can decide. He says, most of us, when we think about our lives, we think about ourselves as the center of what's going on. When you think about your life, you are the main character. You never think about your life as a supporting actor or actress in someone else's story. Now everyone else is a supporting actor or actress in your story of which you are the main principal character. How countercultural to realize God may have us on this earth for a story that is not mainly our story, but is for some other person or someone else and ultimately God's story. This gives us hopefully not discouragement, but real freedom to go and live a life that makes a difference for God in a marriage. I have to take myself out of the, being the main character in order to consider someone else's needs. That's the controlling principle of this passage. The Spirit at work does that work in you 
shows you things to deal with, and the gospel does just that. And when that happens, it's a gracious way that you inhabit the roles in marriage. There's the, sanct- there's the indwelling spirit and there's the sanctifying son, and we'll, we'll head home with this because Paul does. We haven't talked about it yet, but at the heart of this passage on Christ and the church and husbands and wives is this picture of Christ who sanctifies His church. Who, who sanctifies... There's two senses in which Christ sanctifies the church. He sets the church apart to be His bride. She belongs only to Him. That's what the word sanctifying gets at, setting apart. But there's another aspect of it, and that's that the Son purifies the church. You see that there. Having cleansed her by washing of water with the word. That might refer to baptism. It might refer to what's been called uh, in, in the Old Testament as the bridal bath. <laughs> uh, you can look at this later, Ezekiel 16. To his faithless bride, the faithful bridegroom says, I made my vow to you and entered into covenant with you and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed you in preparation for marriage. I betrothed you to myself, and then I washed you. What does that sound like? That's the promise of the covenant. That's the promise of God to take you to Himself and then wash you and cleanse you and leave you in splendor without spot or wrinkle. Do you know what the Gospel does to prepare you for marriage or life in this world, single or not? It takes away. The gospel takes out, it removes, it pulls out the thorns in your life like pride and control and domination and passivity. It pu- the gospel pulls those things out and in its place plants and waters humility, self-sacrifice, gentleness, honor, respect. The gospel does that work. And if you want to be this kind of person, if you want those features to mark your life, whether you're in marriage or not, then you don't start with yourself. It's not a self-improvement project. It's to look into the face of God. It's to look at Him and to see Christ's steadfast love His mercy extended to you. And when you begin to see, when you just begin to see that, you're there. When you want to see it, you're halfway there. But when you begin to see the love of God the Father for you in Christ and what He did to cleanse you, to give Himself for you, that lands in your heart and it does a number. It begins to change you from the inside out into people who are marked by humility and sacrifice, other-centeredness. And you begin to take yourself out of the story as the main character and place Christ where He belongs. And that person that lives with you or that family to which you belong, or the classmates that you study with, 
That's what the gospel does. It takes you out of the center of the story and puts in its place something that can bear the weight of that story. Christ's love for you. It's unending and it's yours. Everyday tasks of marriage are opportunities to cultivate a more selfless love. Every day there's a chance to encourage and inspire others to become his or her best self. Marriage isn't about two individuals trying to satisfy their own needs. Somebody said that's like two ticks on a dog, but there's no dog. But Christ, Christ's love for you is forever. Hold on to the one who holds on to you. Pray with me. Father, would you meet us in this place and work into us a story that is the story of our lives, the story and the love for which we were longing. Help us to see in the face of Christ the one who loves us to the end, who knows everything about us and loves us still. And would you build into us a a sacrificial, selfless, prideless relationship with one another, whether that's marriage or not, but that we might be a church and a people who display to the watching world and to one another what it looks like to be loved by you and to respond to the one who first loved us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.